Sweet Jesus, we thank you for the book Desire of Ages and what a blessing it's been to us, uh, bringing this narrative alive to us in a fresh and new way. And uh, I just want to thank you. Vince Ramick actually said that Mrs. White moved me. Mm. And I knew more about the Vince Ramick than I did before I read her writings. And Lord, I had that experience today in what I read. And we thank you for it. Bless us as we study now, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Vince Ramick was the lawyer. Yeah, he, he was. He was yeah. the guy that they contracted, and there not only was there no, and he was like a copyright lawyer. Like that yeah. was like his job. And they asked him, like, not only we want you to see if she plagiarized, but even if she didn't, if she got it on a technicality, did she do anything unethical? And the answer was no, in both. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I says, read the report. He says, "I'm a Roman Catholic, but she moved me. She moved me deeply, and I know more about myself yeah. because of it." I mean, I've read the real Vince Ramick than I did before I read her writings, is what he says. I know more about the real Vince Ramick than before I read her writings. Oh, so he knows more about himself. Yeah. Oh, I didn't it understand what you meant in your prayer. Him. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Well, as somebody who's read lots and lots and lots of books on the life of Christ, commentaries on the gospel, I can say with some degree, not that I've read every book on the life of Christ, I don't think anybody has, but I've read dozens and dozens of them. And I can say with some modicum of authority as somebody who's exposed myself to these books over the last two decades plus, this is a unique contribution to an understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There's just no question. There are other books that have significantly and wonderfully informed my understanding of who Jesus is. But if you put me on a, an island or you put me somewhere where I, only, I could choose one book about the life of Jesus apart from scripture itself, I'm taking the desire of ages all day, every day. I mean, I'm on my like seventh pass through this book and I'm still reading it in some ways as if I've never read it before. Yeah, I had one of those moments today. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so there's just a short, these are just, this passage is just based on a short little section in both Mark and Luke. Why don't you read them? You got your Bible there. Why don't you read the Mark version? It's short. Mark 3, 13 to 19. Mark 3, 13 to 19, and then I'll read the Luke version, which is okay. Luke 6, 12 to 16. And they're similar enough, but different enough that let's read both. So you got okay. Mark 3, 13 to 19. Okay. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Mm. Okay, that's Mark three thirteen to 19, and this is now Luke 6, beginning in verse 12, down to verse 16. It says, now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother, James, John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon called the zealot, Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. One thing I want to say right at the outset, and this is something that a lot of people seem to not know, or if they did know, they maybe forgot it. The word apostle is a very important word in the New Testament. And it's a word that comes up in the Gospels. It's a word that comes up in the writings of Paul. And the word means sent, sent one. Okay, somebody that sent. And a really easy way to remember this, well, it's particularly easy to remember it in Australia. So in America, if you mail a package, you say, I mailed it. 
Okay, in Australia they say, you know what they say? I'll post it. Yeah, I'll post it. So I'll post that to you, and the word post means to send. So just look at the word apostle, Hmm. just to post. Hmm. So so these were like Jesus' letters. These were Jesus' posts to the world. So they were his apostles, Hmm. his apostles. That's an easy way to remember that what Jesus is doing here is he's calling these men to himself. And one of the things I love about this chapter is that they were just ordinary. They were ordinary men. If you've done any touring of the great cathedrals in Europe, especially Europe, and you go into some of these cathedrals, whether Catholic or Protestant, these men are are very often like set up high, these paintings, these gilded paintings with all kinds of halos and stylistic, and it makes them feel like they're other or even otherworldly, almost kind of alien. They were not. They were just like Dee and David. You'll find that out here in a couple pages. Yeah, they were just ordinary people that chose to follow an extraordinary savior. And I think, I'll just say this, these men would be mortified, as would people like Mary, to see the way that many in religious circles have turned them into something other than what they were. What they were was just ordinary human beings like us, like you, that chose to follow an extraordinary Messiah. And the fact that they're sometimes treated, deified, Almost idolized. Not in almost. fact, in some they cases, are. idolized. Veneration, yeah. And so that's one of the things that we're going to get at here. Um, let's get started. So chapter, uh, paragraph one, she just quotes what we just read a moment ago, right? So he went up on a mountain. He called to him those who he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed 12. And I love this part, that they might be with him. Mm. And in that little phrase, you have the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus' primary intent in calling these 12 ordinary, regular, normal men was just that they would be with him because being with him in the time spent day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, the transformation would take place. The goal of a disciple, the goal of an apostle, the goal of a follower is to be with Jesus. Yeah. Right? Jesus came, Emmanuel, to be with us. And then his invitation is, follow me. Come spend some time with me. The powerful testimony of the disciples in the book of Acts was that their opponents realized that they were uneducated. The original language kind of reads like they were illiterate ignoramuses. But it says, but they could tell that he had been with Jesus. Been with Jesus. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. They were unlearned and ignorant men. Yeah. But they had been with Jesus. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute. Hasn't Jesus already called them? And the answer is yes. Some of them, yeah. Yeah. Many of them, he's already preliminarily called, and they have been with him intermittently, or in some cases, pretty regularly. What this is, is the official, and I want to see if you go with me on this, D. What's happening here, and Ellen White actually teases this a little bit on page 334 of the Types and Symbols 292. We'll get there in a second. But what he's doing in the ordination or the selection and the sending. The commissioning, yeah. The commissioning, great word. He's reconstituting Israel. Yeah. That's what he's doing. And she actually makes that point, right? Twelve patriarchs, twelve apostles. This, so, is, this is the new generation, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because Israel, that is to say, official religious leader Israel, genealogical Israel, has shown itself again and again to be resistant to the evidences and messianic identity of Jesus. And so Jesus now is literally like reconstituting Israel. He's not bypassing Israel. He's reconstituting it, not with 10, not with 11, not with 14, with 12 disciples. And that number 
was provocative and purposeful, and it would not have been lost. Yeah. It would not have been lost on the religious leaders of his day. Numerology was so significant to a Jew that they would realize, this guy's got 12 people following him. I know what he's about. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. They, they knew what he was up to. Um, so then what ends up happening is uh, she basically spends the first kind of several paragraphs talking about nature, the importance of nature, the beauty of nature, because when Jesus called the disciples, he called them you know, to a mountain, and uh, I, I liked it. I thought it was yeah. great. I mean, I'm a big nature lover. You're a big nature lover. I wanted to go camping when I read this. Hey, My, you actually said that. Yeah. You said, let's go camp. What do you love to do in nature? Uh, be quiet and listen and relax just to take it in, to absorb it. So mm. um, I, I don't get lost in a lot of like heavy activities. I'll hike, obviously yeah. backpack, yep, camp, yep, yep. hike. But I'm not looking to do other stuff while I'm there. You're not like a kayaker or a climber no. or anything? No, I'd kayak. I paddleboard. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. And do you find, as she says, that, that nature is restful? Absolutely. Uh, she doesn't say this, but it implies that it's healing. Yeah. Do you Re find that? Rejuvenative. rejuvenative okay. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was talking to my good friend Jennifer Schwerzer, and she told me that there are actual studies that show they took people and they had them walk in a gym, right, for X amount of time, a 30-minute walk in a gym. And then they took people and had them walk 30 minutes outside in a park, and then they measured a number of sort of you know, psychological markers and even blood markers, I think. And they found that it was more healthful to walk outside, to be outside. It's true. Absolutely. Nothing charges my batteries more than having time outside. And even just the yeah. air, like you mentioned yeah. it just a little bit ago, the breeze that's blowing yeah. through here. I wish you all could see what's in front of us. It's like a beautiful rural scene just mm -hmm. overlooking here, sort of, what are we, central Pennsylvania? Uh, Eastern. Eastern Pennsylvania. And it just, it's inviting. The birds are calling, the breeze is blowing. I don't see any blossoms yet. Are any of the trees blossoming? Uh, not yet, because we just started getting warm like in the last week. Okay. But maybe you're out there, you're also a nature lover. The value and the healthfulness mm -hmm. of nature itself should not be, you know, should not be uh, dismissed. And this is the point she makes. She talks yeah. about, you know, no synagogue could have handled the large throngs and crowds of people that were following Jesus. And so he's like, no problem. We don't need a synagogue. We got a mountain. We got a river. We got a valley. We got an open plain. We'll just meet here. And she said it was more fitting and more conducive to learning and to receiving than being in a cold, sterile, man-made building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And she actually says, I like this. This is in paragraph one, two, three, four. And this is actually something that Ellen White mentions quite a little bit in her writings. I've come across it many times. She has this line where she says, here, surrounded by the works of his own creation, he could turn the thoughts of his hearers from the artificial to the natural. Yeah. And she talks about this in several places in her writings, the artificiality of life. Now, remember, she's writing this in the 1890s. If she regarded at some level man-made, man-constructed, man-designed edifices and ideas and even technologies, if that was artificial... What would today be, right? Yeah. How artificial, how modern would today be? I mean, I don't even, what would she think about today? Well, I mean, it doesn't what would Jesus think more about? artificial than when you've got situations like this, you know, that right. we live in a totally augmented reality. 
Yeah, that's a good way to say it. It's almost like a simulation. The yeah, reality it's like you're in. living The Sims. Like I'm not living a real life. I have all these friends in my phone. I have all these friends on my computer. I don't really know them. We don't really talk. Mm. Yeah, it's, and other human beings become just creators of digital information. Right, they're avatars. They're not real people. Right, right. which is why it's so important. And I talked to the young people about this today. You have to make times to turn your phone off, to not look at it, to leave it in the car, leave it in the house, and go outside and just get lost in nature. Go outside, swim in a cold stream, hike across a desert, climb, climb to the top tree. of a mountain, climb a tree, do yeah. something. Right? Pull a Zacchaeus. Climb that tree. <laughs> climb. You might find Jesus up there. Climb that tree. And so I, I like that emphasis there that we turn from the artificial to the natural. And we do need to be doing that, especially in this day where the artificiality of life is so ubiquitous. It's important to make time to connect with nature and yes. nature's God. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, anything else there? I really like this line. This is in that same paragraph. I really like this. She says, Christ's teaching would be repeated to them in the things of nature. And I thought this was really cool. So it is with all who go into the fields mm. With Christ in their hearts. I love that. Oh, isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. You know, just imagine your spouse says to you or your friend says to you, hey, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to go into the field with Christ in my heart. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'm just going to go in the field with Christ in my heart. Imagine saying that to somebody who's not a follower of Jesus. You'd sound like a crazy person, mm -hmm. which I don't mind at all. <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. Um, by the way, then if you jump down to the bottom of that page, page 333, 291 of the original, Jesus had called his disciples that he might send them forth as his witnesses. There's the word, mm. the idea of apostle, yeah, right? To post forth. them, to yeah. send them. Okay, I'm on page three. Did, did I miss anything there for you, Dee? No, I'm good. You're happy. Okay. Um, then we come to the top of page 334, 292 in the original. And this is where Ellen White makes the point that I made just a moment ago about how in the calling of the 12 disciples... There is a kind of purposeful reconstitution of Israel itself. She says it. As in the Old Testament, I'm reading, the 12 patriarchs stand as representatives of Israel. So the 12 apostles were to stand as representatives of the gospel church. And you may or may not be familiar with what is sometimes called replacement theology. Have you heard of that term before? So replacement theology is basically the idea that the church replaces Israel. That's actually a sloppy, incorrect understanding of what Scripture actually teaches. It's not that the church replaces Israel. It's that Jesus fulfilled God's intent and purpose for Israel so that everybody who's a follower of Christ is a descendant of Abraham's, because Jesus was a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, and Israel is reconstituted. Not that it's replaced, it's reconstituted, which I should say welcomes members of ethnic Israel as well. Absolutely. In fact, one of your students is a Jewish man. Right. Right? So he's a Jewish man and he's a committed follower of Jesus. So ethnically, genealogically, Ash is a Jew, but he's also a follower of Jesus. So there's no exclusion. We need to be very careful in our understanding of the prophecies of Daniel 8 and 9 that when the probation closed when the opportunity for being a uniquely called nation closed for Israel, it did not mean that God closed himself off to the Jews or to Jewish individuals. It just meant that in Christ, Israel was reconstituted and that, in, and that he invited people of all nations, including America, Australia, all over the world, including but not limited to Jewish people themselves as well. And a lot of people 
They make mistakes. They say, oh, the Jews have, the Jews have, and it's highly offensive and highly inaccurate. Right? Yeah, yeah their calling was missional, and I think we lose sight of that. Like, their whole call yes. was to reach the world, and if their call is to tell the world, not of the Messiah to come, but of the Messiah who has come, and they've rejected that reality, how could they be the messengers? Mm. So he mm. has to call other messengers to do so, and if they understand that later, they can join that movement and continue. Yeah. Scott Webb says, replacement versus inclusion. Great point. And then Sola Scriptura says, we are spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel is actually a term that I don't use. I don't have a strong aversion to it, but Israel was always spiritual. The the Israel in the Old Testament was inclusive and spiritual, right? Like Paul himself would say, not all who are of Israel are Israel. Israel. He also refers to the Israel of God. And so Israel anciently, as well, in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, was always a spiritual reality that you could opt in or opt out of. Remember, we took a look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, where the very first use of the word Torah in the book of Exodus was one law, one Torah for you, the native born and the stranger that sojourns among you. You could opt out of Israel. And you could opt in to the God of Israel. Yeah, they had proselytes. And in fact, the idea of baptism wasn't totally foreign to them no. when John started baptizing. Correct. Yeah, yeah. very good. Yeah. So, so I'm not objecting here to yeah. the term spiritual Israel. It's just not a term that I use because it communicates that there's been a shift or a change when in fact what's, what's really changed is that Israel was reconstituted in Jesus but it's the same basic idea. It's missional. Yeah, the calling's the same, to reach the world, to bless the world through the Messiah. It's missional, not yeah. salvational. Right. Great point. I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's not exclusive. It's missional. Yeah. Then I really like the, the next sentence of the next paragraph. That popped to you as I well. I that, yeah. So why don't you, why don't you address yeah. it? 334, 292 of the original. You carry on for a second yeah. here. My mouth is dry. I'm going to go get a drink of water. Go for so it. So you do your thing. So it says, The Savior knew the character of the man whom he had chosen. All their weaknesses and errors were open before him. He knew, again, the perils through which they must pass, the responsibility that would rest upon them, and his heart yearned over these chosen ones. And this idea to me came, at least this idea came to me, this idea of being fully known and fully loved. He knew their whole story. He knew the ups and downs that would come as a result of this, and yet he fully loved them and he chose them. With that knowledge in his mind, he chose them. Alone upon a mountain near the Sea of Galilee, he spent the entire night in prayer for them. And while they were sleeping at the foot of the mountain with the first light of dawn, he summoned them to meet him. For he had something of importance to communicate to them. So this idea that he knew them, right? The Savior knew, he knew the perils, and yet his heart yearned over them, right? All the struggles that they would deal with, all the responsibility they would bear. He knew their weaknesses and their errors. He knew the whole story. Yeah. And he still chooses them. His heart yearns over them. And um, I just think that's really, really powerful. I think that's an important theme that drives everything else she says for the Correct. rest of this whole Correct. chapter. Is his knowledge and his treatment, acceptance, and commissioning even with that knowledge? Yeah. In fact, I th- you, it's a great point. Basically, as I read the chapter, Ellen White spends like the first page and a half on nature – you know, talking about the importance of nature. Then she has that little interlude about the reconstitution of Israel. And then this paragraph really launches where she goes with the rest of the chapter that these disciples were exhaustively known. They were fully understood and known and yet loved and called and commissioned anyway. That's really the, that's what I, remember I said I read it over and over and over again and I just kept coming away with, 
one basic idea. That's it. That's the idea. And what she does is she just makes an even more compelling case by showing you just how messed up they were. (laughs) Just how seemingly, in our eyes, unqualified they would be or how stubborn they would be. She gives all the details that makes that knowledge and that forbearance Mm. and that belief, that faith of Jesus, even more convicting than just making it. So she starts with a statement, but her statement becomes even more convicting and even applicable to my own life, yeah, the more yeah, yeah, details yeah. she gives of where those people were. Because now I see myself in Philip. I you're see myself to. in Judas. You're supposed yes. to see yourself in these people, and she does a great job of it. I love how she does this. Big shout out to Hannah. I see that you have changed your Instagram uh, name to actually reflect the fact that you got married several months ago. Because <laughs> she still had it as Griffith, and now I just saw a moment ago it's gone by now, but it's, it's now to Suarez. Good for you. You got married. Represent. Way to go, Johnny. <laughs> Represent. I got to do that wedding. That's great. It was a COVID wedding. It was, it was absolutely amazing. You had it an was... incredible head of hair then, too. That was amazing. Who had a head of hair? You. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I had some hair some on me at that point. Flowing Samson locks. Um, yeah, I, I love that. I just want you all to feel the beauty of the truth. Just let it wash over you. And I know that intellectually you know it, but just feel it right now. God knows you exhaustively. And loves you enthusiastically. Anyway, yeah, absolutely. He, he knows you. Yes. He knows what, you know, I've used this illustration in a sermon that I preached years and years ago. Oh, Elise Harbolt's on here. Marriage. Hey. I love it. Reference to the Princess Bride. I used this illustration years ago in a sermon. I've used it several times where if you've ever bought a lemon, you know, like you bought a bad car or you, you bought something, you thought it was a great deal on Craigslist or eBay or whatever, and you ended up, it wasn't what you thought it was. Right. Oh, I got a great deal on X, whatever X is, and then it turned out to be broken or faulty or – that's called buying a lemon, right? And I ask the people in the sermon, I say, why did you buy a lemon? And the answer is because you didn't know it was a lemon. We did not know. You didn't know. You didn't know what you were getting. You thought you were getting A. You got B. I want to tell you something. Jesus knows what he's getting with you. He knew. He knew. He knew. When he says. calls you into ministry, into his discipleship – he knows exactly, he's not like, he doesn't lift up the hood and say, oh, I thought D, I thought D would be so much better than this. I, I guess, I guess I'm stuck with this. No, he knew what Philip was. He knew what Nathaniel was. He knew what Peter was. He knew what Andrew was. He knew, and he called them anyway. I love that. Preach. And, and the fact that like, it's not just like, well, think about it. You can hang out for a while. Mm. We'll give you a probationary period. Like she says, A he test knew. drive. Yeah, he knew. <laughs> And the next thing that's coming out of his mouth is, I choose you. Yeah, beautiful. He knew, and then I choose you. Like, because that's the, how it goes. Back to the secret is, back to that initial line there, he called them to be with him, and he knew that wh- however they came, whatever their character, their personality, their faults, their shortcomings, in spending time by with Jesus. the word she uses. Yeah, yeah. by beholding. Yeah. And then she, uses, she says things like they were almost – I'm reading now that, yeah. that same paragraph – they were almost constantly with, with him. They were witnessing his miracles. They were hearing his words. So in the exposure was the transformation. Absolutely. And he knew that. And it was willing exposure because they chose to put themselves in a situation where they could be chosen. Like they, they were responding to their chosenness by remaining. I like it. So like they I, – because I, I – we'll probably come to that later because I have a note yeah. in my margins a couple pages okay. later on that point. 
So then she talks specifically about Philip, and I think her her biblical, and I've preached a sermon over the years on Philip. I think it's a good analysis. There are these little vignettes, these little cameos about Philip. I didn't have anything. It broke my heart. I almost cried when I read this. Really? And it was just because of seeing. Talk about that. Well, just the humanity of Philip and how this guy dislike continually isn't getting it and isn't getting it mm-hmm. right. And how much that must have been difficult for Jesus. Um to have someone like he literally utters the words. Imagine how that would feel whenever Jesus tells you, "If you had known me, yeah." After three years. and a half years yeah. into your friendship, the response is, "If you had known me, you would know better." Yeah, fair point. Um, I, did, I my heart broke for the whole situation, not just for for Philip, but just like I'm Philip. Well, that's how I felt. Yeah, what like, you said earlier is. The, des- yeah. the, the crafting here, the purposeful crafting of this chapter is for you to see yourself yeah. in every one of these disciples. And two times she says of Philip that he was slow of heart. Yeah. And slow of heart and weak in faith. I can relate to that. I mean, to be totally honest, if I'm being 100% vulnerable, that shoe doesn't fit me well. Because <laughs> I, like, I just read it and I love it and I'm enthusiastic. Yeah. There are things in here that fit me well, but I'm like a size nine. This is like a size 10. Like it fits, but it's not a perfect fit. Because my instinct is I'm naturally sort of skeptical and not quick to take something on board. But when I take it on board, I own it. I'm like a steel trap. I'm like your dog with its toys. (laughs) I'm like, no, no, this is mine. This belongs to me now. Jesus and I have worked this out and I'm not letting this go. Yeah. And I love, she kind of shows in the, she kind of lays a pretty heavy, difficult picture of Philip. But then in the next paragraph down, which is like the second to last paragraph from 293, of the original version and then a 335, the types and symbols. She says, yet Philip was a student in the school. Like all of these mistakes, all of this ugliness, yet. Yet. I love the yet. He was a student in the school of Christ and the divine teacher bore patiently. Yeah, I got that underline. With his unbelief and dullness. Dullness. And, when, and, and, and the thing is like. That's stung. When you're Philip, it gives you the invitation to let yourself be born along with. Yeah. Right, like it's it, it lets you know that you're born long with. You know, I've met people over the years. I'm sure you've met the same people that say things like, "Oh, I, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin." You know, I've met like 20 yeah. year olds that have said this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be yeah. unkind, but but you do not understand the patience. Have you not read the Old Testament? Right, <laughs> right. Remember, Peter says, "Yes, yeah, seven times, and I'll forgive." And and Jesus is like, "You're just getting started. How about seventy times seven? Yeah. Right, which seven, of course, is the number of perfection. It's like the Jubilee. There's all this going on there. But sometimes, and I don't want to upset anybody here, but sometimes when we say, oh, I think I've gone too far. I think I'm too dull. I've, I'm too sinful. Really, it's a kind of weird narcissism where we think, oh, my, my case is a little special. Yeah. My case is a little different. And Jesus is like, yeah, nah, I've, I've dealt with sinners just like you. I got you. Yeah, I got you. His, his grace is not as strong as my loserness, right? Mm. I remember hearing Andrew Peterson say something a few years ago at a concert where he said that um, one of his friends, when he was talking about his struggle with self-hatred, and that's why he wrote the song, Be Kind to Yourself for His Daughter. Oh, that's a great song. But he makes this point that one of his friends says, you know, Andrew, self-hatred is just another form of self-worship. Correct. Because self is at the center. Self is at the center. You're not looking at Jesus. You're looking at you. And, yeah, there's two. Yeah. There's really two ditches you can fall into there, isn't there? Self-love and self-loathing. Right. Right? And both of those, if you just back away from both of them, self-love and self-loathing, you end up in the right place. Pride you is should at the be, heart of both. Correct. Yeah. 
By the way, I'm so glad that Dee mentioned this. If you've not heard the song, Be Kind to Yourself by Andrew Peterson, and the video is beautiful. He does the video with his son and his daughter. Make a little note to yourself right now. Just go on YouTube after this video and type in Be Kind to Yourself, uh, Andrew Peterson. It'll come up, and he's got a line in there where he talks about it's a... It's a war against a war against. Where does it end? Um, what is with the war that you're in? Is is just you against you against you, you. against you against you. You got to learn to love. Learn you got to learn to love. You got to learn to love your enemies. Too. Your enemies too. And he's yeah. that's a, that's Andrew Peterson's a lyrical genius. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've met him. I've actually met him twice. Yeah, a beautiful him. guy. Yeah. And uh, I actually he did a concert in our church. Did you know that? We had him in our church, and he came and did a concert for us. I've also had Andy Gullihorn did a concert yeah. in my church. Can't get me too. Right? Yeah, beautiful. And the guy's a lyrical genius. Yeah. And when he says, you know, when, when it feels, when life feels like it's you against you against you, a war against yourself, he says, remember, you got to learn to love your enemies too. Yeah. And that's smart. Yeah. And, and this is that one of the reasons smart. why I think in that context, why it's really important to understand what Jesus is actually saying and, and how scary it can be when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the mm. problem is most of us hate ourselves. Yeah. If I love my neighbor in the way that I love me, the world would not be a better place. Mm, got it. And anyway, I was just an indictment there. But um, Okay. So the last paragraph there, when Jesus was preparing the disciples for their ordination, one who had not been summoned yeah. urged his presence. And that's what talks about Judas. Yeah, about and Judas. the next uh, like two and a half pages are all Judas. Yeah. Right? It's just Judas, 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 Judas. And the thing that jumped out to me, and I'll be interested to hear what you've got here, is on page 336, I think this is in the second paragraph where she's talking about Judas, the paragraph that begins, the disciples were anxious. You know what I wrote in my margin here? Let me show you. What I wrote in my margin here was the Saul of the New Testament. Yeah. This is the, Judas is the Saul of the, the, well, in the sense that everybody thought he looked like the guy, he behaved like the guy, he acted like the guy, he's the guy. But he also refused to take responsibility when confronted and he hardened himself whenever the appeals were made. And it didn't just happen in a moment. It happened collectively over time. I mean, she describes that he bore along with Judas day by day. He had the opportunity. I thought this was amazing. Ward against conviction. I thought this was so good. In connecting this man with himself... Jesus placed him where he might day by day be brought in contact with the outflowing of his unselfish love, yeah. right? Oh my God. You know, when I, when I read that, I was like, it's a fire hydrant. It's a fire hydrant, right? Like a fire hydrant is just shooting out yeah. and Judas is doing his best to dodge and weave and stay dry. Yeah. Like, right? like he had the opportunity to get soaked with the unselfish love of Jesus, but he's like, no, nah, I'd rather be dry. Thank you. Uh, and it, it's, it's so... I don't know. It's just heartbreaking to see like how hard the guy worked. And she makes this point that if he would have opened his heart to Christ, the very bottom of that page, 336 of the types and symbols, 294 of the older version, if he would open his heart to Christ, divine grace would banish the demon of selfishness and even Judas might become a subject of the kingdom of God. And the thing that was amazing Mm. to me was that Jesus felt that this risk was worth it. Like yeah, Jesus, the right. faith of Jesus saw something in Judas that he knew the risk he was taking on and he still felt like it was a risk worth taking and that he's going to do what it says in John 13, that having loved his own who was in the world, yeah. he loved him to the end, literally. Yeah. Like beautiful. he completely loved him to the end of Judas making a choice for the right. And it reminds me of Lucifer, like that, that idea of a risk being worth taking. Yeah, it is very um, Luciferian. Yeah, that's true. The other thing that occurred to me is that 
you said something, and I want to have this conversation about Lucifer, and right. I, I want to come back to that in just a second. But the other thing I want to say is, is that you get the sense here that Jesus was really pinched by the expectation of the disciples. She says that, that the, he almost had to do He kind of had to do it. And, yeah. and similarly, God was pinched by the expectation of the Israelites in the Old Testament. And they said, we want a king. And God's like, no, 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 no. You don't want a king. The king's going to do this. He's going to raise your taxes. He's going to send your sons off to war. He's going to take your daughters as concubines. Rrr, goes yeah. through the list. And then they're like, eh, yeah, we want a king. And it shows that God meets us, as she says here, accommodation principle. the principle of accommodation, yeah. the principle where God accommodates knowing that the lesson will be learned. And as a parent, I do this all the time. You know, you say to your children, yet you don't want what you think you want. And then when they get old enough, and they're like, no, I want that thing. You're like, well, you really don't, but here you go. You can have yeah. it. And then they get it. And they're like, man, that didn't turn out the way I thought. Yeah. And Jesus here is pinched by the expectation of the disciples they were already disappointed that he had not tried to ingratiate himself into the favor of the religious leaders. To not call Judas would have been regarded as irresponsible. Yeah. And so Jesus accepted the risk, yeah. knowing, hoping that it was possible that the flow of his unselfish love could break down those natural character traits. And uh, it didn't work out. And I just, watching how Jesus deals with Judas makes me love Jesus even more. Because like mm. Judas gave him every right to cut him off, to cast him off, to be done. The guy's stealing money. He's lying. He's pointing people in the wrong direction. He's focusing on himself. He's wanting to build his own kingdom yeah. instead of Christ. And yet he's still willing to love and pursue this guy. Yeah. And you just think if you're, if you're wondering to yourself, does God actually love and desire good for me, even in spite of who I've been? Absolutely. Judas yes. is like exhibit Judas A. Judas is exhibit A. Like it... And he literally loves this guy to the end. If you're ever wondering about the faithfulness of God's love towards you, the fact that he literally loves Judas to the guy's very last breath and his mm. ability to make a choice for the right, that speaks volumes to me. Yeah. Scott Webb, just a little bit ago, had a line in there about you know Peter and Judas. And there's actually a very great Bible study to be done. And I appreciate you mentioning that, Scott, that I've done myself, where you actually compare. There are some remarkable similarities between the life of Peter and the life of Judas as revealed in the Gospels. Yeah. And the, the hinge, the pivot, was that one chose to stay with Jesus and the other separated himself from Jesus. It reminds me of that great statement from Ellen White. If we do not resist, yeah. we will be drawn. And that's the, next, that's the next paragraph. She says that Judas had the same opportunities as had the other disciples. Yeah. He listened to the same precious lessons, but the practice of the truth, which Christ required, was at variance with the desires and purposes of Judas, and he wouldn't yield. Yeah. And I love same the use of the word practice there, the yes. practice of the truth. But he wouldn't yield his ideas in order to receive wisdom from heaven. And the word yield is the key word there. That's it. He wouldn't yield. Give he would not give in to the Savior's love. Yeah, that's he right. That's the, that's the idea that if you don't resist, you will be drawn. Yes. Right. And so she says how tenderly the Savior dealt with him. Um, yeah. is it, where did you just read that from? That's the very next paragraph. How tenderly yeah. the Savior dealt with him who was to be his betrayer. He, again, and he knew. It's not like Jesus thought, you know, I don't know if you'll put out or not, but I'm going to try. I'll give it a crack. Yeah. He knew from the very beginning what this guy would do, and he loved him anyway. Mm-hmm. And pursued him anyway. I love the paragraph, two paragraphs in front of that. And this is a line that Ellen White has used 
at least once or twice before, and it's a, it's a really great line. God takes Takes men men as they are. Yes. Right. It's just the, just as I am song. I want to read that paragraph. It's so good. Yeah. God takes men as they are with the human elements in their character and trains them for his service. If they will be disciplined and learn of him, they are not chosen because they are, I thought this was a great treatment of the idea of Christian perfection. Yeah. They are not chosen because they are perfect, but notwithstanding their imperfections, that through the knowledge and, again, Practice. practice of the truth, through the grace of Christ, they may become transformed into his image. Yeah. And all I'm going to say is, is that my word is in that paragraph I just read. It's in there. Okay? Don't say anything. <laughs> right? Don't say it. Protect me here. My word is in there. My word is in there. Um, Hannah says, that's the recurring theme throughout the past several chapters. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Ooh, somebody says apprenticeship. Yeah. Well, that's a really good word. It's, it, and it's exactly what he did. Yoke up with me. She's going to use this comparison of yokes between Judas yeah. and um, I forget who the other person is now at the moment. I'm going to turn the page. Uh, I'm on page 338. You, you got anything else there? Um, yeah, he gave him no sharp rebuke this second to last paragraph there. Um, but divine patience bore along with this erring man, even while giving him evidence that he read his heart like an open book. Yeah. Judas knew that he yeah, knew. Yeah, that's key. And so it wasn't even just that he knew. Judas knew that he knew. And I thought that was so important. And he chose to retain his defects and all the stuff. And he cherished yeah. them is another word she used. And then she uses this last line in that page. When he came into associating with Jesus, he had come – he had some precious traits of character – that might have yeah, been. I underline that as well. That, that idea, the faith of Jesus disappointed. You know, like Matthew 23, 37, Jesus weeping over what could have been, not just yeah. over what was. We've actually talked about that in the DAWTA challenge. And those, uh, those ideas that other things could have happened that didn't, those are called counterfactuals. You mm. familiar with that term? No. So a counterfactual is something that could have happened and didn't. Mm. So like I married Violetta, we had Landon and Jabel. If I had not married Violetta, Landon and Jabel would not be here if I would have married someone else. And God is aware. God has knowledge not only of what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. God has perfect knowledge of everything that could have happened. And that's actually referred to as God's middle knowledge. Mm. Oh, that's right. The, the, The awareness that God has of what might have been. And she says in that paragraph two times, it might have been the case. It could have been the case. God saw what could have happened in the life of Judas, but Judas himself refused to see it. Yeah. And then what do you do? Right? If, or, if we. Or he refused to accept it. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want to miss the Luciferian yeah. thing. You yeah. said a really great thing earlier, and I don't want to run by that. Yeah. Bef- do you remember what it is that you said when we were here? And I said, oh, we have to have that conversation. Yeah. Just that the risk was worth it. Like when I look at the situation with Judas, that. God having the knowledge that he did of what could happen and mm. the risk that's being taken to take this guy alongside him, communicating and showing and exemplifying his love in the face of that risk was worth it to him. And it just reminded me of the, the, the creation of all of Lucifer, yeah. that like the, the similar thread. Yeah, the love, sense. freedom, yeah. risk thing. Yeah. And then when you said that, D, I said something, and I think it's important to bear in mind that that Lucifer in one sense was unique and in another sense not unique. The yeah. same patterns that are demonstrated in the life of Lucifer are seen in Judas and seen in others. These Luciferian patterns are very simple patterns. They're just selfishness, right? And God relates to selfishness in the same way with everybody. He extends freedom. He gives love. 
but he does say with freedom comes responsibility and risk. And so Lucifer was certainly unique in the sense that he had access to God in a way that nobody else did, but his pattern of selfishness, self-centeredness, and purposeful, willful blindness, that's a pattern I've repeated. Yeah. That's a pattern you've repeated. There's not a person on this chat who hasn't manifested Luciferian tendencies, by which we simply mean me the tendency of, to put me first. And God's dealing with that is the same with everybody. Then the question is not, oh, God's treating this person one way and this person another way. The question is, is how do we relate to God's treatment of our selfishness? And Peter related to it in one way, back to the difference between Peter and Judas, and Judas related in a different way. And just as the sun shines on the wax and melts it and shines on the, shines on the clay and hardens it, the difference isn't in the sun, right. it's in the material. And Peter made a decision that had a path and outworking. Judas made a decision that had a path and an outworking. Yeah. God doesn't show favorites. No, and she, she parallels, it's Judas and John, where Judas hardened his heart, but it says for John in the second paragraph on 338, uh, page 296 in the original, that he opened his heart. John opened yeah. his heart, but that uh, yeah. it was a contrast of the offer of the yoke that Jesus is offering. He didn't like the yoke. Judas didn't, but um, John did. I forgot one last thing from the previous page. Yeah. The, the fact that you know Jesus bore along with this erring man, even while giving him evidence that he read his heart as an open book, he presented before him the highest incentives for right doing, and then with rejecting the light of heaven, he'd be without excuse. And it reminds me of Isaiah 5. What more could I have done that I haven't done yeah. for you? Yeah. Like, and I think that's the appeal that God will make to everybody outside of the city at the end of the day. Like, what more could have been done for you that wasn't done? And the fact that he gave him opportunity. And I just love this idea that you've heard the saying that I'm not going to go down without a fight. I don't, I don't think God phrases it that way. I think that God's gonna, not going to let you go down without a fight. Like the, 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 the pathway mm. to heaven is going to involve us tripping over Jesus's dead body or the pathway to perdition is going to involve us tripping over Jesus's dead body, his persistent love for us, his persistent appeal for us. Yeah, he's not going to leave you alone. Absolutely not. He is not going to give you rest until you've made your final decision beyond you know, any changing of the mind. That reminds me the first time that we did the DA with DA in DC, you said something about how we trip over the goodness of God. Like yeah. God, has, God has arranged life for every single person individual, tailor-made, that they will find themselves tripping over the goodness of God. No one's going to be able to get through this life, right, as long as they've lived a reasonably long life and not have encountered an opportunity for repentance, for awe, for marveling at the goodness of God. And the way you just said it now is people are going to trip over the dead body of Jesus on the way to perdition. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. There's a quote from E.J. Wagner that is so... Amazing on this point. I'm just trying to wait for this thing to load. Okay, Friday. do your thing. Um, you you good? Is gonna are you there? Come on, You're killing me, Smalls. What's going on here? Go ahead. Okay, no problem. Up. So the next page, then page three thirty eight, which is uh, two ninety six of the okay. original. I got it. Okay. You find it. She says here, all the disciples had serious faults when Jesus called them to his service. So the faultiness. The frailness, frailty was not merely, you know, it wasn't Judas alone that had the, everybody had these faults. They had different faults, and she described some of the faults that they had. And then I like this, even John, John the Apostle, John the Beloved, uh, who came into closest association with the meek and lowly one, was not himself naturally meek and yielding. So where did he learn that? He learned it in, and she uses the language again and again and again in this chapter of lessons, of practice, of learning, of teacher. It's a school. 
Yeah, and of the He's in a school. That's right. John is in a school. What do you got? Here's that quote. It's from the Everlasting Covenant, 189.2. E.J. Wagner says, And so it was throughout the plagues of Egypt. All the steps in each case are not recorded, but we see that it was the long-suffering and mercy of God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. Correct. The same preaching that comforted the hearts of many in the days of Jesus made others more bitter against him. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead fixed the determination in the heart of the unbelieving Jews to kill him. And then he closes with this amazing point. That the judgment will reveal the fact that everyone who has in a hardness of heart rejected the Lord has done so in the face of the revelation of his mercy. Yeah, beautiful. It's true. That's why people are going to say at the end of when it all wraps up, the, the saints are going to say, just and true are thy ways, O yes. king of saints. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because everybody has had the opportunity. And I love that language there that you've used, actually, that people are going to trip over the dead body of Jesus on their way to perdition. They're going to encounter the fact that Jesus paid the price that could have given them the get-out-of-jail-free card, the spend-eternity-in-happiness-and-bliss-with-your-loved-ones-and-with-your-creator card. That's it. And they opted out. Yeah. They opted out. Um, so then she talks, I got, no, I got nothing more about Judas... Uh, if you've got more there, I'm happy to... No, she transitions to John. Um, Talks I just, about John. I just made the point in 338 uh, of the Types and Symbols, 296 of the original version, that they, Jesus reproved his disciples. He warned and cautioned them, but John and his brethren did not leave him. They chose Jesus. Correct. It's a really interesting you know, response to his choosing them. And she's done it in purposeful contrast. Yes, Notwithstanding the reproofs, and the Savior did not withdraw from them because of their weakness and errors, and that's what made them choose him. And so she closes that paragraph by saying, by beholding Christ, they became transformed in character. So their qualification was to be willing to keep beholding him. Yeah, to stay with Jesus. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. Jesus called them that they would be with him, that they would be with him, that they would be with him. On the very next page, 339, uh, 297 of the original, I love this. It says... Uh, but in and through Christ, they were to dwell in the family of God, yes. learning to become, learning to become one in faith, one in doctrine, one in spirit. And so here again is the idea of a school, that there's a process, that we're moving from where you were to where you are to where we're going. And it's by beholding, it's by learning, it's by loving. And I just love that specific phrase, learning to become. Yes. Learning to become. You got something else? You grab your phone real quick. They're asking for the reference. It's the Everlasting Covenant, page 189.2, and that's from E.J. Wagner. The Everlasting Covenant, 189.2. E.J. Wagner was uh, one of the pioneers, one of the late pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. One of the great gospel uh, preachers. Great gospel preacher. Yeah. Um, I really like this. Christ is the great center. She's describing how the disciples would themselves become more closely connected and friendly with one another. And it's an illustration that's really good for marriage as well. Christ is the great center and they would approach one another just in proportion as they pro approach the center, mm -hmm. which is great. As they come closer yeah. to Jesus, they come closer to one another. And that's what true Christian community looks like. Yeah. We're all heading closer to Jesus. And as we get closer to Jesus, we get closer to one another. Yeah, and it was his love that would lead them to love one another. Yeah, lead. Right. She uses the word yeah. lead. Lead to love for one another. The master would lead to the harmonizing of all differences. I love the idea that he's out front. He's leading yeah. because he's invited us to follow him. That's right. She makes a point twice <laughs> in the third paragraph on that We're page. We're almost done. This isn't a very long chapter. Yeah, she makes the same point twice in page 339 in Types and Symbols, uh, 297 in the original 
that divinity needed humanity. Yeah. She makes that statement twice. This is sort of her wrapping up. She's yeah. wrapping up here. And that man needs a power outside of and beyond himself Correct. to restore him to the likeness of God and to enable him to do the work of God. So divinity needs humanity. Divinity needs humanity. But man needs divinity's power to restore him into the likeness of God. And this does not make the human agency unessential. Unessential. Humanity lays hold of divine power. Christ dwells in the heart by faith. And through cooperation with the divine, the power of man becomes efficient for good. There's another place where she says that when the will of man is is fully merged with the will of God, it becomes becomes omnipotent. So it reminds me, in the world of Jesus, one of the ways that rabbis would make the invitation to their prospective disciples was to invite them to wear their yoke. Did you know that? That was actually a thing. That was, you would wear the yoke of your respective rabbi. And as you kind of, you know, went up the chain of more and more illustrious and excellent rabbis, the yoke got tougher and harder, more discipline, more memorization, more ascetic, you know, sort of uh, practices, which is why it's so radical that Jesus says, no, no, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy. And my burden is is light. Jesus was, again here, purposefully stating a rabbinical invitation using their language, their ideas. We've seen that Jesus did this yesterday, but he, he, he reverses it. Mm. He says, yeah, yeah, no, my yoke, my yoke is available to just anybody and everybody, and it's an easy yoke. It's a light burden, and I think that's a really great way to think that when we, yeah. fo- you know, it, the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Yeah. We think, oh man, following Jesus is hard. Yeah, try not following him. See how that works out for you. Does life get better? Do you have less stress, less anxiety, less uncertainty about the future? Listen, life is hard, period, full stop. The question is not, is life hard? Life is hard for everybody. The question is, is life harder or easier when you are, you know, following the one that made you and loves you and created you for happiness and health, right? Yes, it is hard to follow Jesus. Try not following him. That's what Peter's getting at when he says, "Uh, Lord, where would we go? Yeah. You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? You're the best show in town. And so when you come to that place where you're like, man, this is harder than I thought it might be. Yeah, just just remind yourself of this. Life out there is just as hard. But what you'll do is if you leave Jesus, you won't be able to bear life. Nobody can. So they have escapisms. Drugs, sports, entertainment, alcohol. You've got to escape. One of the great things about being a follower of Jesus is that you can face the reality of life full frontal and say, yeah, life is still hard, but I'm sober. At least I'm me. At least I'm not living a life of continual escapism. And the irony of this is, is that the critique of religious people is, oh, that's a crutch. Oh, you need a, are you kidding? I'm facing life as it actually is. I'm, I'm not chasing the latest and greatest escapism. It is hard, 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 hard to face. Think about COVID. Think about what we've just gone through with COVID or the terrorist attacks or the financial uncertainty or environmental uncertainty. Listen to me, friends. People without faith in God and faith in scripture and faith in Jesus, they're wearing all of that. The uncertainty. Think of Elon Musk, who's trying to get to Mars as fast as he can. Like These people are wearing a low-grade, inescapable anxiety. Yes that is inescapable, okay? One of the great things about being a follower of Jesus is that you can look reality in the face, sober, committed, and not just surviving, thriving, 
because the love of Jesus is flowing through us to others. And as we get closer and closer to the end of time, that contrast between those that are escapist and transgressors and selfish will be stark compared to those that are like from a whole different place, a whole different way, a whole different kingdom, a whole different way of thinking about life. And that becomes it. This is really what converted me. I was not primarily converted by a Bible study. Eventually, somebody gave me a Bible and I read it and was converted. I was converted because I saw people that had something that was wonderfully, mysteriously attractive Same. that I knew I didn't have. Same? Same? Same thing with my dad. I wanted what he had. I didn't know what it was, but That's I knew that something point. was in there that I didn't have and I wanted it and I didn't care what it cost to get it. Amen, yeah. brother. We want to be those people. We want to be those people that are drawing, wooing, attracting, almost magnetically, people not to ourselves, but we then deflect to Jesus. You know, you made this point that the yoke gets heavier and harder the further up you get. But Jesus flips this whole worldview because the whole point of the yoke is the fact that you aren't bearing the weight. Somebody else is. Ooh, come on. Like the very fact that Jesus is saying, everything that they deserve, lay that on me. Yeah. And I will drag them behind me. Like I'll, I'll take that. I'll take the weight they're Ooh. bearing and them. It, yeah. And I think that, that, that yeah. what he's Thank saying you. flies in the face of their view of religion and how things were to work. It's, it's remarkable, and I've preached this many times before. When you go to Isaiah 53, which is the quintessential suffering servant passage of the Old Testament, the gospel prophet Isaiah, go to Isaiah 53 and mark how many times a reference to bearing or carrying or a burden is mentioned in that chapter. It's like 12 times. He shall bear their iniquities. He bears, he carries, the weight was upon him. Yeah, Jesus is saying, yeah, you want my yoke. You're going to wear a yoke. Life is going to be hard. Everybody the way of the transfer, everybody's wearing a yoke, yeah. right? Life is hard. Now, now, to be fair, if you have enough money and enough discretionary income and enough leisure time, you can temporarily avoid some of the hardships of life, but you cannot avoid all of them no. because sickness comes and financial crises come. You can, for a very short time, purchase a little reprieve from the hardness of life, right? You're famous, you're, but you can't do it forever. No. You cannot do it forever. Gravity has its way. Life is hard. It's hard for everybody. And I love the fact that God invites us to endure the hardships, the difficulties, the vicissitudes of life, not in some escapist way or with some crutch, but with him alongside us. And what the rich can't run from is the weight of their own conscience. Oh, well... Yeah. I mean, that, that comes point. due and owing and with interest. Everybody, every yeah. single person has it hard. Yeah. Everybody has it hard. You can create these little moments of escape, but they catch up to you. Drugs are an escape. Yeah. They catch up to you. Alcohol is an escape. It catches up to you. Sex is an escape. It catches up to you. Pornography is an escape. It catches up to you. Yeah. One of my, again, favorite things about biblical Christianity, it is it has taken the escapisms out of my life and it is given me Jesus, and I can just look at life with its difficulty, with its hardship, with its frustrations, with its ups and its downs. Jesus didn't, you know, as the old saying goes, Jesus didn't promise smooth sailing. What he promised was a safe landing. Right. right. So come with me, we're gonna land safely, but we may or may not have a smooth ride. I don't need a smooth ride. What I need is to land safely, and Jesus has shown us in his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection and ascension, that's the guy I'm following. That's the guy. Somebody conquered death. Yeah, that's 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 the guy I'm going with. Yeah.
He's my choice. Absolutely. I got, I got my money on that horse. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I'm not, who else are you going to follow? That's what Peter says. Where else would we go? Where Absolutely. are we going? Absolutely. And the disciples got that. Like they realized that no one else can do what this guy can do. No one else can offer what this guy can offer. Even when they were confused about the stuff he said and did. But they literally went all in. And we like, got to go all in. Yeah. Like they didn't hold anything back. Like literally you see like the miraculous catch of fish that they get. And the, the boats are sinking. They pull the boats to the shore and they literally leave the greatest business transaction they've ever right. had in their lives yeah. on the side of the shore. And it didn't matter because no. there's something about Jesus. No, they weren't looking back. They weren't going to yeah. turn into a pillar of salt. No. I have – I always get – and I don't say this out of pride. Please don't hear what I'm about ready to say out of pride or out of self-sufficiency because I don't think it's born out of that. I think it's born out of the fact that I already lived a life without Jesus. Yeah. And now it's like why would I leave that? I do see people – I encounter people that leave the faith – leave Christ, leave the church, even leave ministry. And my heart always breaks because the promise is held out to them of something better. There is no something better. There is no something better. Like I just feel the weight of John 6. Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I'm, I'm, Jesus is stuck with me, man. Yeah, I got He's stuck with David Ashrick. My dad makes this analogy that like I've already swum halfway halfway across the lake, and it's going to take just as much energy to go back <laughs> to go the other way as it is to go forward. Yeah, and what he has to offer is so much better that I'm just going to go there. Um, I love how she kind of. I lands got one the more plane. thing to say, and then we'll do our rubric, and I'll give you my word. So you okay. go. I just want to see she, how she lands the plane. She says in the bottom of page three thirty nine, uh, types and symbols two ninety seven in the regular. Am I right in that, or is it this one? No, that's right. The, okay. You're right. I've probably been doing it wrong the whole time. She says that he who called the fishermen of Galilee is still calling men to his service. Thank you. And he's just as willing to manifest his power through us as through the first disciples, which means that he knows. Mm. Oh, he knows yeah. your dirt. Yeah, that's right. He knows your foibles. He knows your future failures. He knows all of your limitations, and he's still calling you in the same way that he had called them. And yeah, that, you're not a lemon. He knows. However imperfect and sinful we may be, the mm. Lord holds out to us the offer of partnership with himself. And again, that word of apprenticeship with Christ. Yeah. Is that your word, apprenticeship? It's not. That's, somebody said that. But I did say word. my word. You said it already? I, 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 asked for, I asked for the scepter of mercy to do two words together. Oh, yeah, that's right. The one and final thing. Yes. I did say it was okay. The one final thing I want to say is. You read it already, but man needs a power outside of and beyond himself. This is on that same page. I just want to highlight that that idea of outside of and beyond is the very same thing that we talked about two chapters ago. You just might want to write down 315, 316 when we had that two-hour mega session talking about righteousness by faith. And, And Ellen White says, and I'm just going to read this here, the goodwill of God to men, they did not accept as something apart from themselves. Mm. Right? The righteousness of Christ is outside of us. It's yes. apart from us. It's given to us, mm-hmm. right? We receive it as a gift, but she makes that point here again, that we need not just coaching, yeah. not just mentorship, not internal illumination. No, we need to be saved. Yes. We need to be transformed. We need to die and be born again. Right, And so there is no flattery. And this is one of the reasons that Christianity is so deeply offensive to many people. It takes a very unflattering perspective on the unregenerate human condition. It pulls you off the throne. That's why. Yeah. yeah. Now, it takes a very flattering portrait of human, in, human nature as originally intended, made in the image of God. Yeah. 
But fallen humanity receives no flattery from yeah. Paul, from Jesus, yeah. from Scripture. And so we need a power that is external to us, yeah. a power that's beyond us and above us and greater than us. This is the you know, dialogue that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. He's like, teacher, we know that you're a man sent from God. I flatter you, you flatter me, and together I scratch your back, you know, quid pro quo. You scratch mine and we'll get there together. Jesus is like, deadpan, looks him in the eye, you must be born again. You're broken, you need to be fixed. And I love that. I remember Nathan at Convocation when he did the book of John, that Jesus gets in his face. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny yeah. how things that Nathan Renner says stick with you. I never forget him, yeah. He's a great preacher. Um, I'm ready for the rubric and I'm ready for my word when you, when you are. All right, I'm gonna close with one last thing. One last thing. There are souls perplexed with doubt, burdened with infirmities, weak in faith, and unable to grasp the unseen. They can't see it. Mm. But a friend whom they can see Coming to them in Christ's stead can be a connecting link to fasten their trembling faith upon Christ. That's your job. That's my job. Yeah. That's the privilege we have. Yeah. She does that, end in that beautiful... Yes. She, she does a really strategic thing there methodologically. She moves from all the stories of the disciples to what God is calling us to do for yes. others. Smart. Yeah. She's often doing that. Oh, yeah. Right. She's so good at it. That, okay. That uh, book at the end. And then she quotes 2 Corinthians 4, 7. You know, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency may be of God and not of us. Perfect. Perfect. She quoted 2 Corinthians 4, 6 in the last chapter. You know, I love how dependent upon and familiar with Pauline theology Ellen White is. Like she's steeped in great, a great understanding of Pauline theology. And I, I resonate with that deeply. Absolutely. Okay. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? What's your word? My word z, is he knew. <laughs> oh, he knew. He knew. Well, see, he had a little phrase there. Yeah, he knew. So he knew. He knew the depths of where they would go and what they weren't, and he called them anyway. And he knows about you and I and calls us anyway. He knew. Beautiful. Christian Martin says that Judas could see in Jesus a friend is unbelievable. Totally yeah, agree. Absolutely. He saw what might have been, what yeah. could have been. He knew. He still calls him friend. When he betrays oh, him. Oh, absolutely. In fact, she says that that was one last little invitation, one little opportunity for Jesus, for Judas, excuse me, to turn. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a great point. Thanks for that, Christian. Yeah. So your, your word is less a word and more a phrase, and it is he knew. He knew. Yeah. And she opens with that, right? Yep. Right at the outset, yep. she says, uh, the Savior knew the character of the men whom he had chosen. And she says it about Judas, too. He knew. He knew what he'd do. He and knew. Love him anyway. Okay, so what are some other words we've got here? Partnership, uh, transformation, the chosen ones, called, chosen, choice. It'll be interesting to see how many words Hannah has. She had seven yesterday, probably <laughs> has 17 today. <laughs> um, oh, that's a really good word. Sabria says cooperation. Ooh. That's a great word. It is. That's a great word. I like that. Character, very good word. Ooh, seen. All right. Allison says seen. That's a little bit like yeah. he knew. Yeah. Chosen. Right. Oh, these are good words. Okay. Hannah, only one word. I'm disappointed. Chosen. That's it. Character, cooperation, chosen, chosen channels. Oh, that's a good play on words. Transformed. Compassion. Sure, oh, that's an interesting good. one. Yeah. Um, Hannah says just one word today. Willing. Good word. I like Dee's phrase, says uh, Brunette Barbie 81. Hey, Brunette Barbie likes your phrase. He knew. <laughs> cooperation, practice, partnership. Oh, good Word Christian, center. Hmm. Remember a play on the, the, as they came closer to the center, they came closer yeah. to one another. Great yeah. word Christian, unconditional, called, empowering, compassion, chance. 
Den, Denward says chance. I don't. Do you get that one? Took a chance on them. Maybe. Oh, that that could be. Maybe he yeah. took a chance. Patient. Patient. Known. Forgiving. Ooh, that's all. I mean, that's never going to be a bad word, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, thank the Lord. Open. Intimate. Qualified. Mm. Ooh, that's kind of cool. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. I like that. Um, long suffering. Close. Grace. Nobody's saying my word. Okay. That's true. My word is. It's. You can say it either as become. Or becoming, become or becoming. And she actually uses the word over and over again, if you pay attention to it. And I noted with you that particular phrase, learning to become. I'll read it here. It's on page 339. She says, but in and through Christ, they were to dwell in the family of God, learning to become one in faith, in doctrine and in spirit. And this, do you know what this sounds like? This sounds like Mark chapter one, verse 17, which is my favorite of the invitation of the disciples. The call of the disciples by the seashore of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, um, is found in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in the Mark tradition, the Mark and gospel, it's even better. And this is what he says, quoting Mark 1, 17. He literally says, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. That is so cool. Yeah. I will make you to become fishers of men. This is not something that happens in an instantaneous transaction. It happens over time. And I want to show you something. And the guarantee of all the infrastructure that's needed to get there. The inf- oh, the infrastructure is a good word. Yeah. So I don't know if you can see this or not, but just look for all of the yellow. Every time you see yellow there, that is a reference to... The fact that this would involve a process. Mm. Look at all the yellow there. There's page one. There's page two. Not as much there. Here's, look at this. Mm. Yellow. That's reference to this being a process. Look at this one. All of those are words that indicate a process. Mm. So things like to wear the yoke, lessons, patience, he learned, share his trials, and then become, 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 become. And so I love the idea. In fact, there are more than 50 references. I wrote it here at the beginning. There are more than 50 references to the fact that the development of the disciples from what they were into what they would become would be a process. Mm -hmm. It would be an education. It would require discipline, time, energy to bring about transformation. And so I love the idea that I'm not there yet, but I'm becoming something. Yeah, I love that theme of like the imparted, imputed, the fact that you're declared righteous while he's making you righteous. Like the, he's, the, the security he provides throughout oh. the entire transformation journey is, is amazing. You are quoting my, literally, if I had to pick a single favorite verse in the entire Bible, do you have any guess what it might be? You're looking right now. I mean, if I had to, if you, Hebrews 8, if you had to give Hebrews me 10. a single, oh man, I don't even know if I can say this. I think I would say it. This is it. If I had to pick a single verse in the entire Bible that is my favorite verse, it would be Hebrews 10, 14. Hmm. For by one offering, that's the sacrifice of Jesus, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being saved. That's got everything in it. One offering He has perfected, there you go, there's the arrival, there's the promise of getting there. He has perfected forever those that are in the process of being saved. That's it. That's what you just said. Yeah. To me, Hebrews 10, 14, we are something, 
and we will be something and we are becoming something. And when we don't feel that we're getting there and we feel like it's slow going and it's like, well, it's not happening with me like it's happening with others, stay with Jesus. How fast stay you grow with Jesus. is none of your business. Yeah, how fast you grow is that That's what That's none of your business. That's God's problem. Stay yeah. with Jesus. Stay in the soil. Stay with him. Another word that she uses a lot here is dwell. Yeah. To dwell, to dwell, to dwell. She says they dwelt. She even at one point calls them dwellers. Mm-hmm. She says dwellers. And the word here, dwell, stay, is abide. Abide, remain, stay, yeah. become. Because if you stay with Jesus, you will become. Yeah. You will become the thing that God created you to be. You Let's do our help. rubric. Uh, what was the point of the chapter for you? What was the point? Um, what was the big takeaway? I think the, the biggest takeaway I would say was that Jesus knowing still fully invests. Um, Back to the knowing. Absolutely. Yeah, the knowing, the knowing and growing. I, oh, that's interesting you say that, knowing and growing. The last church I pastored, our mission statement was knowing, growing, going. Mm. Well, that, so, that's what that chapter is. If you were to summarize this chapter in three knowing, words, it's that. Knowing, growing, going. We would say knowing Christ personally Growing with Christ in community, going with Christ in ministry. That was our church's mission. I loved it. Um, So here we go. The point for me was to tell the story of the setting apart of the 12 disciples for their development, dwelling, and discipline. Development, I think, is the word there. To become something. Yeah. And, of course, the root word of disciple is discipline. It's the same root word. That's it, yeah. Um, She talks about that, how we discipline, yeah. What do we learn about the person of God, let me go first here because sure. I'm just going to pick up on something you've already said. God knows us and still calls us and uses us anyway. Yeah. He is patient and persistent. I would say he's relu- he was like he's relentless. Yeah, relentless. You say yeah. relentless, I say yeah. persistent. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Have you ever heard the old poem, uh, uh, Francis? It'll come to me in a minute. The Hound of Heaven. I've heard of it, but I don't know. Oh, it's such a great poem. Great poem. Why can't I think of who wrote that? Um, It'll look that up. The Hound of Heaven by. Do you you have your phone there? Can you just look that up real quick? What? Let me look it up on here. No, I can't do it. The Hound of Heaven. How come I. It'll come to me in a second. The poem, The Hound of Heaven by. I just can't remember who did it, but that's just driving me personally crazy. In fact, can, can I tell you something really embarrassing about myself? I mean, sure. Okay, you guys want to hear something super embarrassing about me? I, I promise to not judge you. You'll and, judge me. You're going boys. to judge me when I we're, tell you we're this. We're still boys. We'll be boys, but you're going to judge me. Okay. So when I can't remember something, sometimes I refuse to ask somebody that I know would just know the answer, no problem. And I won't Google it. I won't look it up. I just do this like battle with myself. And recently, like two weeks ago, I was dreaming about Star Wars. I dreamed about Star Wars. I don't know why. Uh, not Star Wars. Star Trek. I dreamed about Star Trek. I don't know why. I haven't watched Star Trek in 100 years. But I dreamed about it. The USS Enterprise. And when I woke up... Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> when I woke up, I was thinking about Spock. Uh, Francis Thompson, of course. Thank you. I was thinking about Spock and, and James, Captain James T. Kirk. And I immediately said, oh, yeah, Spock. That's Leonard Nimoy. And then don't say it. I could not remember the actor that played... James Kirk. I just couldn't remember it. And I thought, oh, I, I'm not going to get out of bed until I can remember it. I'm not going to get out of bed. Ten minutes later, I was like, ah, I'll remember it in the shower. I'll take a warm shower. My blood vessels will open up. My brain will work better. I'll remember it. Took a shower. Couldn't remember it. 
Went through that whole day, could not remember it, and it was driving me crazy. I knew I could just Google it, but I didn't want to Google it. I did this like war with my mind. I told this to two friends of mine, and they said, oh, we can tell you who it is. I said, don't give me any hints. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't say a word. <laughs> well, anyway, literally, this is not an exaggeration. If either my friend Larry or Greg were here, they would tell you this is the truth. Four days later, <laughs> I send them a text that has two words. I William Shatner. I've got it. So anyway... When I can't remember something, it, it, I, take it, I, I take personal offense when I can't remember something. So Francis Thompson, thank you for that. Otherwise, it would have driven me crazy. Um, so The Hound of Heaven is such a great poem yeah. where he describes how God is relentless in his pursuit. That runaway song that I showed you the other day, too, reminds me of that. Oh, that's yeah. a good, good song. Thanks for yeah. sharing that with me. Okay, what's the prayer? What's your prayer here? God, help me to see what you see in me. Ah, oh, that's good. The, the yeah. faith of Jesus prayer. Yeah. Really help, good. Help me to see what you see in me. That's a good prayer. That's, that's, that's a good prayer. My prayer was, God, make me a true disciple. Mm. Just make me a true disciple, which is very, you know, complementary with your prayer. Yeah. You know, help me to see, especially in those moments where I can't see it. Mm-hmm. Help me to see what you see. Help me to believe what you believe. That is the faith. Faith is believing what God sees. And then acting as if it's true. That's right. Okay? Because it is true. And then finally, the practice I just wrote for me, the practice here, stay with Jesus no matter what. Stay with Jesus no matter what. The mistake that Judas made is he departed from Jesus. And there's that great passage there. And what is it, John? He stepped out into the night. And it was night. And in the Gospel of John, I think that's in the Gospel of John where it says he stepped out into the night. Night plays a very important role in the Gospel of John. The contrast Nicodemus. of Nicodemus. There's many instances where night and, and he stepped out into the night. You know what he did? That was, that was the moment where he stepped away from Jesus. So for me, the practical application of this chapter, chapter 30, he ordained 12. I'm going to stay with Jesus by his grace no matter what. Stay with Jesus. Even if you have a gigantic hiccup like Peter had, yeah. denying and cursing and swearing and be- whatever. Even if you have a gigantic hiccup, Peter knew where his yeah. bread was buttered. Remember, don't you love that when the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. Yeah. Peter knew where his bread was buttered. He was the one who had said all the way back in John chapter six, Lord, to whom should we go? He had a moment, he had a lapse, he had a hiccup. He came back and he became such. In fact, when you read first and second Peter through the lens of the development of Peter into a disciple, it's a miracle. Yes. And the guy became so firm and- It's night and, and day. It's night and day. Yeah, I, I remember I did for a while, I was reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, repeat for months. Mm. And then I finally went into the book of Acts. And because you spend so much time watching the disciples before the ascension, you see what a dramatic difference there is in who these guys are and who I'm reading about. Yeah, in the book of Acts. It's right. night and day. Yeah, when the spirit yeah. was poured out on them, yeah. they night had a day. they were different people. But those seeds had been sown in the ministry of Jesus, and then they were, they were watered by the Spirit at Pentecost. That's right. And and the same with us. You know, you do have those periods of latency and frustration, but then you have these periods of tremendous growth. Yeah. And and you just got to go with Jesus through the ups, through the downs, through the valleys, through the mountaintops. And if you stay with Jesus, you will end up in the right place. And I don't mean end up in the right place like in heaven. Oh, you made it. Sort of fire escape religion. I mean, you'll end up in the right place in terms of your character, the person that God created you to be. And a happy byproduct of that is, oh, by the way, you get to live forever 
in happy, blissful coexistence with your other followers of Jesus and your creator himself. I love the fact that um, God doesn't view our L's as losses. He views them as lessons. And Ooh. you see that in how he deals with the disciples. That's good. That, and I think this is what allows you to get back up, is the fact that that wasn't a loss. If I bring those things to Jesus, he can turn them into lessons and I can keep moving. That th- those falls can actually set me up to not fall again in the future because I realize my limitations. Yeah, that's good. I realize how I lost good. sight of Jesus. And instead of staying go down, back. I learn a lesson from it and yep. I go right back to where I left Jesus and I keep moving. God doesn't see our L's as losses, as losses but as, them as lessons. lessons. You know, yeah. There's another way I've heard that said and I really like it. You've heard the term, the phrase win or lose. Yeah. Yeah, win or lose. How about win or learn? Yeah. You win or learn. Yeah. Because you get it right. And sometimes even when you win, you don't learn as much as you do when you lose. Mm. There's been a lot of I learned champion- more from my losses. Yeah, than that's I do my wins. point. There yeah. have been a lot of championship teams and others that have said one of the best things that happened to me was I took a loss because in those in those moments of loss and of failure and of falling flat on your face, that's when you're like, whoa, you know, take stock, you know, reality check. Whoa, I'm not where I thought I was. Yeah. That's good for us. Yeah. Okay, we hope you guys have enjoyed this lesson, DA with DA. I'm not sure how tomorrow is going to work. Tomorrow is going to be maybe the trickiest of all because I'll probably have to do it tomorrow evening because I teach all day and then I drive and then I catch a flight and then I land at like 7 o'clock in the evening. So I, I'm just if, – if tomorrow happens, no matter what happens, we're not going to miss a day I don't think. God willing. But uh, in a worst case scenario, I'll just have to do two in one day. But my goal is to do DA with DA tomorrow, day 32, chapter 31, which just happens to be, as the, as the chips fall, the second longest chapter in the whole book, the chapter on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'll definitely read it and study it on – in fact, that's what I'll do. I'll just do it tomorrow night. So it will be at about – Probably 8 o'clock p.m. Mountain Standard Time, so about 6 o'clock Eastern. So about an hour and a half from right now, ten, ten. tomorrow. Oh, 10 o'clock. It's uh, yeah. ahead. Yeah, 8 o'clock. Yeah, 10 o'clock. It's going to be late. It'll be late tomorrow. I apologize for that. But it's better – what does it say? Better, better, better late, late than, than never. never. Yeah. My friend used to say, better never late. <laughs> All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a great, encouraging chapter this is. And I'm with D, Father. He knew. That's a great Mm. phrase. It really captures the essence of the fact that God knows us exhaustively, and yet you love us enthusiastically. Mm. Yes. Father, we are not there yet, but we are becoming. Mm. We are in the process of becoming the people that you've created us and crafted us to be. Father, lots of other great words out there. I loved Christian's word, center. Mm. Father, we... We want to stay with Jesus at all costs. And we don't say that as a show of our strength and of our conviction and of our loyalty. We say it out of total weakness. Mm -hmm. Father, without Jesus, we'd be in big, big trouble. And so take us, make us, we give you permission right now to move us Mm -hmm. to the place where we will stay with Jesus at all costs, at all expenses, no matter what it takes, Father. Tie us like that old uh, Greek myth, tie us to the mast of the ship, Father, so that we can't get off. We just love you and we want to be with you and turn us into the people that you've created us and crafted us and redeemed us to be is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.